The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This is the Lawfare Archive. I'm Emily Day, and this is an episode from the Lawfare Archives for October 30th, 2021, four years after the deadly Unite the Right march and rally in Charlottesville, Virginia in 2017, the civil trial determining whether the organizers conspired to engage in racially motivated violence began this past Monday. This white nationalist rally, along with the ongoing investigations into the January 6th attack on the Capitol, has sparked discussion on what is and isn't domestic terrorism. For this week, I chose an episode from January 5th, 2019, in which Benjamin Wittes talked with two domestic terrorism experts, Mary McCord and Jason Blazakis, about how domestic terrorism could be incorporated into criminal statutes. I'm Matthew Kahn, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, January 5th, 2019. The murder of Heather Heyer in Charlottesville in 2017 and other recent events have drawn into the public discourse the fact that domestic terrorism is not a crime in and of itself. Earlier this week, Benjamin Wittes sat down with two experts on domestic terrorism to talk about ways that it might be incorporated into our criminal statutes. Mary McCord, a professor of practice at Georgetown Law School, a senior litigator at the Institute for Constitutional Accountability and Protection at Georgetown Law School, and the former acting assistant attorney general for the National Security Division, and Jason Blazakis, a former State Department official in charge of the office that designates foreign terrorist organizations, and a professor of practice at the Monterey Institute at Middlebury College, joined Ben to talk about their proposals for how domestic terrorism might become a crime. They discussed why domestic terrorism is currently left out of the criminal code. They talked about their two proposals for how it might be incorporated and how those proposals differ. And they talked about the First Amendment consequences of their competing proposals. It's the Lawfare Podcast, Episode 378, Mary McCord and Jason Blazakis on Criminalizing Domestic Terrorism. You have both argued for a equalization or rationalization of the relationship between international terrorism under U.S. law and domestic terrorism under U.S. law. Mary, I want to start with you before we get to what you guys have specifically proposed. Every time there is a terrorist incident or a hate crime, a major sort of killing in the United States, we immediately get this 
kind of inane debate, is this terrorism? Why isn't this being treated as terrorism, et cetera, et cetera? So I want to start off with a simple, clear explanation of why this debate happens, what the parameters of it are, and to what extent and why there is the disparity that exists between domestic and international terrorism for purposes of U.S. criminal law. Sure. So uh, I think what you're speaking to is every time there's an incident, a terrorist incident in the U.S. that is not immediately attributable to having been inspired by or directed by a foreign terrorist organization. Right. Fair. So the, I think a lot of the confusion stems, frankly, from the fact that there is no federal domestic terrorism offense because there is concern out of Department of Justice and out of the Bureau, the FBI, uh, rightful concern that if you label somebody a terrorist, uh, even when they're there is no terrorist offense that applies to their conduct, that that's a prejudicial thing to do, which it certainly is. That's a, a status, a label that is very significant. It's one of the worst types of crimes a person could commit. It, it carries a very significant uh, stigma with it. And so there's concern about labeling something terrorism when there's no federal terrorism offense. And then if you ever, and, and thereby potentially prejudicing the ability to prosecute that person for other crimes that person might say, I can't get a fair trial. I've been called a terrorist. Secondly, I think there is concern in the federal government with when you don't immediately have, you know, a link to a foreign terrorist organization. I think there's a concern because we don't label domestic organizations as domestic terrorist organizations, that somehow that label will put a signal or a suggestion that certain groups, assuming that the perpetrator may be a part of a group are being looked at by the federal government as terrorist organizations, which adds to confusion because, again, the federal government doesn't actually designate terrorist organizations, domestic terrorist organizations. All right. So, Jason, pick up on this. How did it develop historically that the international terrorism offenses are defined as such and the international terrorist groups are designated as such, but the domestic terrorism offenses are not, at least not in federal law, and domestic groups are not designated. I mean, that that is a, a pretty dramatic disparity. Um, before we get to the merits of it, just describe historically how it developed. As it relates to the various legal authorities that underpin the United States government's ability to sanction foreign terrorists, there really are two primary authorities. The, the authorities for the Secretary of State to designate foreign terrorist organizations that's been in existence since 1997, and then the ability to sanction individuals and organizations under an executive order, Executive Order 13224, that's been in place since 2001. And I would say that the the bulk of the focus recently um, from 2001 on has been using that executive order authority to go after both individuals and organizations um, pursuant to authorities that the Department of State and Treasury possess to sanction foreign-based entities. And that interest primarily lies with our national experience, our national trauma stemming from 9-11. And ever since then, the bulk of the U.S. government apparatus has been focusing its counterterrorism money, its authorities, its personnel against uh, the foreign-based threat opposed to, as opposed to the domestic-based threat. And 
the reason why I, I think we've taken this tack is because of 9-11, but also because of significant concerns that Mary just mentioned about this, this line between free speech and labeling or painting domestic um, individuals as terrorists. And that's been a, a concern for, for quite some time. And I agree with Mary as to why there's been that reticence historically. So I'm interested in the question, before we get to the question of what a domestic terrorism statute would look like, I'm interested in the question of to what extent the disparity is sort of rational. So let, let, let me spell out a case for the rationality of the distinction. If you commit an act of domestic terrorism, which involves killing people or trying to kill people, there's a whole lot of authority to prosecute you for the murder, for the bomb making, for the acquisition of whatever weapons you use, as well as for the conspiracy to do it. So there's no substantive deficit of prosecutorial authority. On the other hand, the international terrorism laws developed because there actually was a substantive deficit with respect to a number of things. One was you kill a bunch of people abroad presumptively, there was no jurisdiction over that. It had to be created, and it was created because we wanted to prosecute international terrorism cases. You want to raise money for terrorist groups abroad. There's no law against that until the mid-1990s. And so these are statutes that had to be created in order to address a foreign terrorist problem, there was no deficit with respect to domestic authorities. And so I guess I want to I wanna ask, to what extent is the disparity in both of your minds, Mary, I'll start with you, a reflection of a kind of anti-Muslim prejudice or sort of like fear particularly of foreign groups and a sort of lackadaisical attitude to domestic white supremacist groups? versus to what extent is it simply a reflection of the historical need that gave rise to the statutes that currently govern? So I agree with you completely in sort of the historical reasons for the distinction. And I also agree, and I've written and, and spoken about this several times, that there's not sort of a substantive lack of criminal statutes that are applicable to almost all acts of domestic terrorism, particularly when we're talking about murders and other violent crimes. These are illegal in all 50 states. What I think has changed, and it's not just that, you know, there is an anti-Muslim bias, which is unquestionably true, but what I, one of the things I think is important about recognizing a need for a domestic terrorism statute is another purpose of criminal statutes, I think, other than simple punishment, is also to sort of be a marker and to advise, you know, the American public or people in the United States about what the threat of terrorism is in the United States. And I guess I should say that's one of the reasons for terrorism statutes as opposed to just criminal statutes. So one thing that really struck me, particularly in my time as criminal division chief at the U.S. Attorney's Office in D.C. and then as principal deputy and later acting assistant attorney general for National Security Division at DOJ is that the actual threat that terrorism poses to people in the United States is actually greater in terms of loss of, you know, life and limb 
post 9-11 greater that, you know, a person will be injured by an act of domestic terrorism than by an act of international terrorism. And by that, I mean an act motivated by domestic extremist causes rather than international Islamist extremist causes. And so too much of the data and the writing and the reporting and the discussion, whether it's on Capitol Hill, whether it's in the executive branch, whether it's out in, you know, media circles in the rest of the U.S., too much has focused on the international terrorist threat, I think, to the detriment of people understanding the significance of the domestic extremist threat. And the reason I think it's important for people to understand it is you cannot effectively combat crime that people don't understand. I mean, you can't combat crime, drug dealing in neighborhoods in District of Columbia or, or inner city Chicago or other areas without the people in that community sort of having an, an appreciation for the significance and extent of the crime problem in their communities. And so you need the support as law enforcement, you need the support of communities to help solve crimes and to help steer people who might be on a path toward criminal activity. When we're talking about terrorism, we're talking about a radicalization path toward extremist violence. You need people to be looking out for that. And when, when there's almost no data out there about domestic terrorism, when there's not nearly enough discussion about it, when there's no federal crime that applies to it, that kind of community involvement just doesn't happen. Jason, what do you think? To what extent is this debate largely a symbolic set of questions? And to what extent is it a reflection of actual statutory uh, authority deficiency in areas that are important substantively? I largely agree with, with Mary's take that the discussion has an element of, of symbolism, but I, I do think um, it goes beyond that as well, and I agree with Mary on the, on the metrics. Why why we should care? Why there should be a discussion? Why there should be um, a domestic terrorism law? If you look at the stats the University of Maryland produces through its global terrorism database, certainly you're more likely to be killed by a white supremacist um, or white power movement linked organization in the United States um, than by uh, a Salafi jihadist terrorist group since 9/11. So I think the the numbers merit that discussion. Uh, as someone who worked at the Department of State, um, essentially managing the State Department's foreign terrorist organization list and then managing the Secretary of State's determinations as it relates to sanctions of foreign-based individuals pursuant to Executive Order 13224, whenever we designated a foreign-based entity, we would go in through our embassies to Marsha country and say, please take action against this actor that the U.S. government has designated that's in, in your backyard. But I always felt it was somewhat ironic that if a country came to the United States and asked us to sanction an individual that's primarily based in the United States for their terrorism activity, that the United States wouldn't have an ability to really label that individual unless they had a, a nexus or a connection to a, a foreign organization. And a good example of that is someone like Anwar al-Awlaki, who's a U.S. citizen who the United States Department of Treasury designated because of his activities linked to al-Qaeda in Arabian Peninsula. So I've always felt that there is this incongruity as we engage with foreign partners, and it sends a, a very confusing message. And it also was my experience while working with foreign counterparts that it tended to be these authoritarian countries that would tell us no. If we reached out to, say, for instance, the Egyptian government and asked them to designate ISIS and Sinai, they would say there is no ISIS in the Sinai province. Or if we reached out to the Russians and said, we want to designate the ISIS caucus province at the United Nations. Would you support us? The Russians would say there isn't an ISIS in our caucus region. 
So from my perspective, I think it would also allow our diplomats to have perhaps a bit more leverage in conversations they have with international counterparts if we ourselves acknowledge the fact that we have domestic terrorists here in the United States. And when I think about these individuals' activities, whether it's an individual like Robert Bowers or Cesar Sack, you think about sort of broadly the definitions of terrorism. You know, who are they targeting? They're targeting civilians. What's their motivation? Their motivation's political. And what do they do? They they have tried or they have killed um, civilians in a, a violent manner in an effort to instill fear. All those, from my perspective, meet the definition of, of terrorism. And for that reason, we need to take a, a, an approach that I, I think does go merely beyond the symbolic. Um, I, I think would have practical effect and send a less confusing message to internal and external audiences. All right. So let's turn to those proposals. Uh, you guys have both advanced ideas about what this uh, should be, and the ideas are rather different. And so I'm, I, I want to start off by having each of you explain what your idea is, and then let's have at it and, and critique each other's proposals. So Mary, get us started. What, what would the Mary McCord domestic terrorism statute look like? So my proposal is really pretty simple and straightforward, and it's modeled, frankly, on an existing terrorism statute, the statute that prohibits acts that transcend national boundaries, because that statute is based on designating certain violent crimes, murder, mayhem, uh, assault with a dangerous weapon, aggravated assault, kidnapping, when any one of those specifically enumerated crimes are committed with what I would suggest then for the second half of the statute would be when any one of those specifically enumerated crimes are committed with one of the intents that is already included in the federal definition of domestic terrorism, then that would itself be the crime of domestic terrorism. So those intents are the intent to intimidate or coerce a civilian population, the intent to influence government action by intimidation or coercion, or the intent to affect the conduct of government by mass destruction, assassination, or kidnapping. Uh, the first two of those being the more the more common. And in part of my thinking in promoting this type of a statute is, is to avoid some problems we've seen in other areas. So uh, to reference simply crimes of violence in the federal code, uh, when committed with those intense I just described as potentially one form of a domestic terrorism statute. The problem is we have a Supreme Court case, Johnson, that said part of that definition of a crime of violence is unconstitutionally vague. So I wanted to avoid that and say, well, let's just enumerate the crimes that I think no one would ever think are vague about whether they're crimes of violence, murder, mayhem, kidnapping, assault with uh, intent to murder, assault with a dangerous weapon. And then, and this we can get into when we talk more about Jason's proposal, is, you know, what this statute would do is it would certainly it would not make material support to a designated terrorist organization a crime because from my perspective the difficulties for because of the first amendment primarily with designating domestic organizations as terrorist organizations are just too difficult at this stage to get past in terms of congress in terms of opposition from civil rights groups etc and so i think there's 
good reason. We'll get to it when Jason gets a chance to explain his proposal to talk about those things. But in terms of something that we could do rather easily right now that shouldn't, frankly, be very controversial, my proposal is simple. And just one last point before I turn things over. You can still have, by including conspiracy to commit domestic terrorism and aiding and abetting domestic terrorism, as I've just defined it in the proposal I have, if you include within that statute the criminalization of conspiracy and aiding and abetting, you could get to a lot of material support. In other words, if a person is actually funding, recruiting, soliciting, conspiring with others to commit a crime of domestic terrorism, providing the weapons for it, providing surveillance for it, anything like that, that person would be equally culpable under a statute as the person who actually carries out the the act. So just to be clear on two points, would still be totally legal to give money or other material support to the KKK. That's right. And here's a, a, a somewhat subtler question. Is there any substantive violent conduct or attempts at violent conduct or conspiracy to commit violent conduct that would be illegal under this proposal that is not already illegal? Or is it simply a nomenclature thing that whereas before we would call it, you know, uh, murder, threats, et cetera, now we would call it domestic, domestic. terrorism? It's probably a crime. Everything I've mentioned is probably a crime somewhere, not not under the federal code. In some cases, it might be. In many cases, it might not. But certainly under most state statutes, the conspiracy to commit a crime of violence, aiding and abetting a crime of violence would also be illegal. All right. So, Jason, your proposal is in some ways more ambitious and more closely modeled on the international terrorism statutes that already exist. Walk us through what you're proposing so that we can see both how it relates to the international terrorism offenses, but also how it relates to what Mary is proposing. Sure. So the first thing I'll say is um, in, in any essay that's about 900 words, there's just gross oversimplification of, of the, the contours of what um, this would look like. So what I propose is at all, not at all, from my perspective, a, a comprehensive answer to the challenge of, of domestic terrorism, but rather um, an approach that I feel is worth exploring. And essentially it's, it's this, it's to provide authorities to relevant departments, whether it's the Department of Justice and the FBI or the Department of Homeland Security, the ability to sanction domestic terrorist organizations if they meet three general criteria. The the first criteria being obviously that the, the group is domestic-based. The second, that the group is engaged in terrorist activity or has the capacity and intent to engage in terrorist activity. And that's really important from my perspective, and I'll get into that later, in that that terrorist activity is a, a threat to U.S. national security interests. Um, and then I have a, an, a second proposal, a proposal that would allow the U.S. government, the uh, relevant authority, if this um, law was ever adopted, to designate specifically um, individuals who are um, meeting this criteria um, as designated uh, American terrorists is what I, I called it, essentially engaging in terrorist activity that's a threat to U.S. national security interests. And again, that they may even have engaged in that violent activity or they have the capacity and intent. And from my perspective, capacity and intent is quite important because I, I agree with Mary that we have to be very careful about the slippery slope that we could 
think if we were to label um, individuals as terrorists just merely based on on the rhetoric or their thinking or their speech. That's that's a bridge too far. In my experience at working at the Department of State, when we were designating individuals under Executive Order 13224, we took great care to designate anybody that was international-based to ensure that we weren't just designating them based on the words they said, that they actually had to have a capacity to act where they have acted. So what I'm saying, I guess, in the context of designations of, of organizations, um, one example would be a group like Atomwaffen Division, a group based in the United States, neo-Nazi organization that's actually engaged in violent activity, not just mere rhetoric. Um, that, those were the kinds of individuals or individuals or groups that I think would be worthwhile in terms of taking a, a stab at in terms of trying to sanction pursuant to a domestic terrorism authority, if that makes sense. And I think the the challenge is putting together um, the criteria and ensuring that that criteria is properly vetted by attorneys at various agencies. And when we were designating individuals under Executive Order 13224 when I was at the Department of State, we made sure that the actions we were pursuing and proposing to the Secretary of State weren't merely based on, on the rhetoric of the individual that we were proposing for designation. And I, I think that's... Uh, uh, the care that we took in terms of that process would take anywhere between six months to a year or more to to essentially carry out before a group was sanctioned under those authorities. And I imagine the same care would be taken by the relevant authorities to ensure that um, designations of domestic individuals or domestic organizations wouldn't merely be based on speech, because that would be a problem from a First Amendment perspective. And I, I fully agree with Mary's perspective on that. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, Lawfare listeners, Ben Wittes here. I want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contains some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, the data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me. 
and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information. Big culprit this time is something called my life. Well, I wanna tell you that they don't have my life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there and these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a, a solution to this problem. And I wanna stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story that you know they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back and then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20. Right, so I imagine that somewhere at ACLU headquarters right now, about 20 heads are exploding in an act that uh, would not be considered domestic terrorism, but might be considered grave psychological damage, uh, because just to channel what they would be feeling, you say that you're not proposing, one of you says you're not proposing a regulation of speech, but you are proposing uh, prescribing organizations and interface with organizations on the basis of substantive viewpoint if some people within that group engage in or intend to engage in violence. And the other of you uh, who is not proposing that is proposing a broad new federal authority to bring in lots of presumptively state-level offenses 
on the basis of mere intent with respect to substantive political views of the perpetrator. And so I'm not exactly the world's uh, biggest civil libertarian, but let me let me let me channel uh, the civil libertarian concerns here and say, first of all, Mary, if this does not create new authority to prosecute activity that wasn't already there, isn't what this actually is is a federalization of a whole lot of crimes that are perfectly adequately prosecuted at the state level, you know, for symbolic reasons that the effect of which is to make federal jurisdiction dependent on the motive of the perpetrator? I think I would put it a slightly different way, which is that it's a recognition that in some cases where the intent of the actor is to commit a crime of terrorism, in other words, to influence or, or coerce a civilian population or the actions of government, then that is no longer a state crime. It is no longer confined to a locality. For example, Robert Bowers, who committed the shooting at the synagogue, the Tree of Life, now I haven't gotten inside of his head or talked to him myself, but he seems to me to have been sending a message beyond that synagogue, beyond Pittsburgh, beyond Pennsylvania, much greater across the U.S. and frankly, even across the world, because this is a case that's reported on. He's sending this terrorist message of, you know, hatred toward Jews and they should be eradicated. And he's doing this in a locality and committing the crime of murder, but he's doing it with the intent to really transcend those local boundaries and even those state boundaries. So to my mind, this federal crime of domestic terrorism would recognize that crimes committed in the situations with the intent that I'm speaking of are not just state crimes. And there is an analog, and people can disagree with whether the hate crimes suite of statutes were ever a good idea. But that is another case where in federal law, they have taken what are typically state law crimes and when committed with a specific intent, they are now federal crimes. And I think that was also in recognition of the fact that there there's something bigger here than just a typical local uh, murder based on personal animosity or a grievance or a crime of passion or whatever. They're done with a bigger purpose. So, one certainly can argue it's a mass federalization, but I think there's a rationale here, which is that it's a recognition that what it, what the actor's trying to do there is very different than your common, and I hate to call any murder common, but your garden variety, you know, murder. These are different types of crimes. Or even your garden variety mass yes. shooting, right? I mean, if, if Robert Bowers goes into a shopping mall and kills the exact number, same number of people, but does it for, you know, Parkland shooter kind of reasons uh, rather than political motivation or hate motivation, uh, your proposed statute doesn't cover the offense. That's right. And, you know, we're all very troubled by crimes like that. And we're, you know, the Las Vegas shooting was a classic example where we've just never really been able to come up with a motive. And, you know, so even though that feels kind of like terrorism because it makes people feel terrified in terms of the definitions of terrorism that the federal code uses, which again are the same definitions it uses for international terrorism, that those crimes where you can't ascribe it to a motive to further this cause and intimidate or coerce, that's the key there, intimidate or coerce. That's what I think does make it different. So in other words, your proposal would not eliminate the debate that we're having where 
you know, an act of mass violence happens domestically without a link to a foreign terrorist group. And we all say, oh, is this terrorism? As long as there's no clear political motivation. If there's a clear political motivation, we would be able to say, okay, this is domestic terrorism. I think that's right. So there would still be some mass violence that would still go unexplained. All right, uh, Jason. So in some ways, the the uh, civil liberties anxieties with your proposal are going to be even broader. As I understand the history of the 1996 anti-terrorism, the material support statute, the reason it is focused on foreign groups, despite the fact that it was passed in response to Oklahoma City, which was in fact a domestic act, was that Congress and the executive branch both believed that there was a grave constitutional problem with criminalizing support domestically of organizations based on their political belief. Whereas when you're dealing with foreign organizations, you have the whole, you know, economic sanctions regimes where the you know, executive branch is allowed to say, you know, you're not allowed to do business with Cuba, right? You're not allowed to do business with North Korea. And so there's a certain degree of viewpoint discrimination comes along reasonably with foreign policy. How do we get to it is constitutional to say this group engages in violence, therefore we can proscribe your involvement in that group, even if you're not being involved with the criminal side of anything they do? So as it relates to the um, designations of foreign terrorist organizations, the one thing I want to make clear is the designation of uh, a group like al-Qaeda, for instance, doesn't in and of itself mean that you by being a member of al-Qaeda, can be prosecuted for providing material support. You have to provide something tangible. Membership in and of itself was never anything um, that could lead to a material support-related prosecution. But, 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 it's, but isn't that a distinction without a difference? Because there's no way to, if you're a member of al-Qaeda, when you volunteer your own services, the services themselves are considered material support. And so the act of signing up and agreeing to provide those services, the moment you do anything, like have a conversation with somebody about it, is a conspiracy to commit material support, Right. No, I, I don't think so. Um, I, I think just having a, a mere conversation in of itself, unless you provide some kind of tangible material to Al Qaeda, um, would not be something that uh, a prosecutor is likely to um, try to pursue in the context of a prosecution against that individual. Uh, if that conversation becomes more substantive, you are agreeing to do something on behalf of the organization, whether it's moving a package or something as, as simple as that. Um, that that's a different story. So the, the reason I mention this is, if you were to say sanction a group like the Atomwa Division that's based in, in Southern California, the the fact that you are a mere member of that group would not mean, um, from my perspective, as I envision um, a domestic terrorism law and the ability to designate domestic terrorist groups, would not mean that that individual could be prosecuted for providing some kind of form of material support to the Atomwaffen Division. In the context of my proposal, I, I make very clear that the organization um, has to have both a, a capacity and intent to carry out uh, terrorism activity or the organizations carry out violent activity. And then as I think about the designation of, of individuals or 
the potential prosecution of individuals for material support, they would have to do something beyond merely saying that I think the Atomwaffen's ideals are something that resonate with me. Um, and just to take a step back also, I think it's important to think about what Atomwaffen says in the context of, of its literature. It's an organization that says outright that it wants to carry out acts of violence and terrorism to bring down the system. And they have engaged in, in violent act. Members have engaged in violent activity on behalf of the organization. So as I think about it as a counterterrorism practitioner for the past 10 and a half years at the State Department to August 2018, it's very important to me that any designation of an individual or organization must be a designation that's founded in not just uh, the rhetoric of the organization or the principles of the organization, but that organization has crossed some kind of line, that it's engaged in violence or has both the capacity and intent to engage in violence. And it's going to be left to the investigators, those who put together the terrorist sanction package for those organizations, those domestic-based organizations, to ensure that they are putting together a proposal that doesn't cross the, the First Amendment line. So I just wanted to be clear about that, that I, I envisage um, any kind of prescription of an organization to be founded on something beyond mere rhetoric. But I'm I'm still troubled by the idea of prescription of an organization at all. Very few organizations save you know, uh, organized crime organizations, but very few political organizations engage entirely in illegal activity, right? And so a group that is engaged in white supremacist or for that matter, Islamist, uh, extremist, radical violence is also engaged in preaching on behalf of the things they believe. And as I understand the Communist Party cases from the 50s, the Supreme Court has been pretty clear in the domestic context that to prescribe an organization uh, is one thing to prescribe the illegal activities of the organization, but to simply declare the organization illegal, you have to essentially know that all of its activity is illegal. And I, so I guess I'm interested in how do you protect against the, I mean, maybe the First Amendment jurisprudence here is overbroad, which is a, no pun intended, which is a different issue, but it is the law. And I, and so I'm just trying to understand how a material, a domestic material support statute would work without the, without the group that, like the one in humanitarian law project that lost at the Supreme Court, prevailing with, by the way, John Roberts, who wrote Humanitarian Law Project, writing the opinion. I'm, I'm just I'm trying to figure out what the what the constitutional boundaries look like. So, uh, for, again, from my perspective, um, it's it's a it's an excellent point you're making. I, I don't argue about the line that you could cross. Um, it's a very delicate dance. I, I mentioned it in, in the piece that the the law would have to be carefully crafted to ensure that um, First Amendment-related activities remain protected. Uh, for groups that are inherently violent, um, that have engaged in violence, that preach violence, that have engaged in acts of violence um, that I would characterize as, as terrorism, um, as Atom often do has done, or the Rise Above movement has carried out um, in terms of their activities, um, I, I think you would have to rely on, just as you rely on for the crafting of the designations of foreign terrorist organizations, that 
the individuals that are charged with crafting these packages and then reviewed by numerous lawyers, um, you know, when we designate as foreign terrorist organizations, um, state legal would review it. The National Security Division within the Department of Justice would review it. Treasury's OFAC Council would review it to ensure that those determinations would not be based on um, simple speech. So, I, again, I just would reiterate that. Then I think you need to think about sort of are these organizations that are inherently violent, that are looking to uproot the system, that have actually engaged in acts of violence, or organizations that we would want to be able to have some kind of protection under um, the First Amendment to, to essentially to disguise their activities as, as First Amendment protected activities. And from my perspective, the answer is is no. I, I don't think groups like the Rise Above Movement who have carried out acts of violence should be allowed to hide behind the First Amendment. I think um, we are at a point politically now where these organizations are, are hiding behind this protection. They're hiding behind the protection of political leadership, and we should not allow these organizations to to exist, um, given the fact that they are um, specifically carrying out acts of violence, and um, their rhetoric obviously is problematic as well, but the fact that they've crossed the line, from my perspective, in and of itself is sufficient. What about groups like Antifa, or uh, more historically, uh, the Black Panther Party, which you know obviously had a major expressive role also engaged in some acts of violence and uh, and threatened other acts of violence. How do you draw a line that allows you to say this group that engages in some combination of violence and speech is sufficiently weighted on the violent side that you can prescribe it, and this group that engages in some combination of violence and political activity and speech is weighted sufficiently on the speech side that you can't? It's a great question. So again, I I will say, as it relates to groups like, for instance, I think even a better example would be a group like the KKK, for instance. The KKK has a number of what I would call like independent franchises. Not all these independent franchises are engaged in inherently violent activity. They may have despicable rhetoric that we don't agree with. So it's going to come down, from my perspective, to the investigation that's going on as it relates to that organization. Is this a coherent organization? Is it an organization that has a leadership um, and followers who are engaged in violent activity as the primary reason for the existence of the organization. And the Atom Waffen Division, just as an example of this, is an organization that's engaged in violent activity, that adheres to violent activity, and, and that's the raison d'etre of the organization. Some of the other groups, whether it's Antifa, Black Liberation Movements, I, I don't think those are necessarily good analogs. I think you would have to break down the component parts of these organizations. Antifa is a very large movement. Some of these other organizations are larger movements. So investigators would have to disaggregate these movements um, in, in some ways, maybe down to the, the cell level, um, because they're not necessarily going to be organizations that adhere to sort of an, an overarching philosophy of, of, say, headquarters. They could be splinter groups, for instance, in some cases, the Antifa mem members again, are separate organizations within sort of this very large um, Antifa, you know, name that people have given it, but it's, it's you know, very cellular in nature. So I, I think in those cases, you'd have to be very um, careful about um, being overly prescriptive. Groups like Atomwaffen are estimated to be, you know, about 50 members in size. Um, the Rise Above movement has comparable numbers. Um, so these are much smaller organizations 
um, with clear leadership. Um, so I think you'd have to make those distinctions through investigations only, and that context is quite important. So Mary, uh, you've listened to this exchange, and I have this sneaking suspicion watching your face as we had this exchange that these concerns are some of the reason that you kept your proposal away from the material support side and and sort of more modest in its ambitions. I'm curious for your thoughts on on how dicey the terrain is once you get into the designation department without the president's and Congress's foreign policy authorities to back it up. Well, I, you know, while, you know, my sentiments certainly are with Jason that there are some organizations out there that I think uh, really are all about committing violence. I do think it is very, very dicey. I mean, we know from the case uh, Holder v. Humanitarian Law Project that the Supreme Court said in that case, things might be a little different here if we were talking about domestic organizations. So we already have that marker uh, saying that, you, you know, if you ever think about doing this domestically government, you're going to have to, you know, really dance on the head of a pen. I think also that just, you know, as, as Jason was alluding to, there might be ways to thread that needle or dance on the head of that pen if you really did have an organization that, you know, literally has as its mission statement, we aim to use violence to achieve our political goals, and then you see acts of violence. And and maybe that is Adam Waffen. I know about them, but I'm not a, you know, student of Adam Waffen, so I don't know everything about him. But I think that if that were the standard, which might be the only standard that could pass muster, if anything could, in court, you know, under First Amendment challenges and other challenges, I think that that would probably apply to precious few organizations. And it would be pretty easy to get around that by, you know, making sure that your organization did other things, did, you know, peaceful petitioning of it, of the government and, and other things like that, even if there were divisions, and maybe this is Jason's point about the cellular level, even if there were divisions of the organization that were formed specifically to carry out violence, and certainly the KKK has those kind of divisions. So it's, it's some of these challenges, not, not so much a disagreement about whether it's possible or not, but I think any sort of designation process would be extremely difficult and would be challenged immediately and would be very hard to to succeed on. I, I also feel compelled to just mention when we talk about the crime of material support, you know, having been a prosecutor for more than 20 years and approved when I was at DOJ, really all of our material support prosecutions, you know, Jason mentioned just being a member wouldn't be material support, but I can't really think of an example of sort of what just being a member would look like. Because if, you know, obviously DOJ has prosecuted cases where a person attempted to travel to join a foreign terrorist organization and has, has prosecuted that as material support. Now, granted, I give you that normally in those cases that were prosecuted, there was evidence that the purpose of of the person's intent to travel to join al-Qaeda or ISIS was to fight or to do some act for them as opposed to just join. We usually had that in evidence, but not but not always. And and I'm not sure that I'm not sure what a just membership case would look like that that wouldn't also be material support, I guess is my point. So if we take it to a domestic organization, if to join a domestic organization you pay dues, well, the payment of those dues would be providing, you know, money in support of a domestic terrorist organization. 
if you, by joining the organization, you know, have to attend X number of events, you know, that could potentially be material support because you're furthering whatever those goals are of the organization. So I guess, I, I, again, I think this is just an area where as much as I think the goal is, is noble and I don't disagree with sort of like sort of the need for something like this or, or the usefulness it could serve, I think it's very, very fraught. And that's before we even get into the fact that, you know, I've worked with FBI agents almost my entire career. I have great respect for them, but I can't ignore history. And uh, the Bureau has at various times in history really sort of abused its authorities to go after groups based on their political ideologies that were unpopular with those. And I think there's legitimate fear of those in the civil rights community that authorities such as if the FBI were the main authority in um, proposing groups to be designated um, domestically as terrorist organizations, I think there's a lot of people who would have very legitimate concerns about how the FBI would use that authority, not just in recommending groups to be designated, but in investigating, infiltrating groups for purposes of designation. And these are, again, maybe not totally insurmountable, but if you start out a statute like this, with a lot of dissension and disagreement about it and and don't have support of civil libertarians and you know the broad community of people in the US it's just it's just a hurdle that for me I was just more modest in in my goals here you mentioned and we're going to end with this I think you mentioned your your work with the bureau uh, over time, you also mentioned earlier that you didn't doubt that in the disparity between domestic and foreign terrorist organizations and domestic and international terrorism, one of the drivers behind that is a kind of anti-Muslim bias. I'm interested for your sense, both of you, and um, in to what extent this is, you know, an idea that is actually that law enforcement would want uh, by way of guiding itself? And to what extent law enforcement, I mean, to the extent that one can say what law enforcement view is, right, actually likes the disparity, how do you evaluate the sort of law enforcement attitude toward the disparity between the domestic and international side? So I think a lot of this does come from 9-11, right? Post 9-11, you know, just federal resources just immediately whoom, shifted hugely over to combating international terrorism. And so particularly for agents who came on to into the Bureau after 9-11, or even for those who were still relatively junior at that time and then got put into counterterrorism. And I mean, I, I worked with people who worked bank robberies and got shifted over to counterterrorism when I was at the U.S. Attorney's offices. You know, these people, they came to this in the frame of our enemy is Islamic extremists, terrorism. Um, and that's what we're fighting against. And so I, I don't think that most or all or even a, any substantial portion of FBI agents have sort of an anti-Muslim bias. I think they saw the threat that they were being told, here's where the threat is coming from. Federal resources were being put toward that, uh, rightfully so, post 9-11 to, to, to trying to protect the country. But unfortunately, that result in, you know, some real pushing the envelope and even abuses, I think, of some of some of the authorities. And Today, if I look at the law enforcement folks that I've worked with, 
not only in the FBI, but in state and local organizations, I think many of them really do perceive the threat of domestic terrorism to be a very significant threat. I think many of them would welcome additional authorities. And by authorities, I don't mean additional surveillance authorities or investigative authorities, because they have those. I mean, just uh, authorities in a criminal statute that would come come with resources and and an allocation of sort of a mandate to put resources into investigating and preventing these cases. I think that many people who have worked counterterrorism have really tried to develop a relationship with the Muslim community because, again, law enforcement can only be effective in protecting public safety if there is cooperation of the community. And I think that there are law enforcement who would like to develop that same cooperation when it comes to having the community help them ferret out domestic extremism um, before it, it results in violence. So, And I also think that even though it's unquestionable that more resources have gone to fighting international terrorism, it it is not that the federal government has actually ignored domestic terrorism. They do work on it. It is a priority. It just doesn't manifest itself as clearly in part because of the lack of a statute. And that's another thing that I think a statute would help. We would have better statistics. Uh, we would have more resources and funding. And to the extent that people are worried about that, that those resources will be used wrongly, you know, Congress can build in various oversight mechanisms, reporting requirements, you know, what investigations have you launched year to year? And do we think that they're appropriately focused? You know, what have they resulted in, in terms of prosecutions and convictions? And, you know, there are ways to monitor and prevent abuses that I think would be, you know, warranted in this situation. Mary, Jason, thank you both so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Thanks this week to Mary and Jason for coming on the show. If you haven't yet, please share the Lawfare Podcast on social media, on Twitter, and on Facebook, and give us a five-star rating and review wherever you found us. The Lawfare Podcast is edited by Jen Patya Howell, and our music is performed by Sophia Yan. And until next time, thanks for listening. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.